So we pick up the account of the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 7. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount. And it says in Luke chapter 7 verse 1, when he had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went down to Capernaum. Now, Luke is laying out for us the life of Christ. And the purpose of the Gospel of Luke is to convince us that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one that they have been looking for since the time that God spoke to Eve and said, I will send a deliverer. I will send someone who will be there to finally deliver you from your sins. So Jesus is this person. Luke gives the Sermon on the Mount, which are the words of Jesus. And the fact is that if you were looking for the Messiah, and you were paying attention to what Jesus got done saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that should have been all that was necessary for you to rightly conclude, this is God's Messiah. Jesus takes the teaching of the Old Testament and breathes such life into it, brings it into the reality of the day in such a way and and raises the bar of morality to the highest height ever. You look at the Sermon on the Mount and you think, if only we could all live like this. If we could just think right and act right and love our neighbors right and be right and kind about our good works even when we do them. We pray in secret and we fast in secret and we do our alms in secret and we just... Trust God to take care of us and to be there for us. And we don't hate people. We love people. And like the rain falls on the just and on the unjust and the sun shines on the evil and the good, so we, trying to be like God, are good to everyone. All all of the things that Jesus lays out here were in opposition to everything that was being commonly taught at the time. And, of course, the people at the time thought they were teaching Moses. Jesus stands up and says, let me explain to you exactly what Moses was trying to say. And how in the world you all got to where you got. You need to get away from there and get back over here. God is, in fact, concerned about what you think. God is concerned about what you have in your heart. That is essential. So if you were looking for a moment for the nation of Israel to all repent after the Sermon on the Mount is when they should have done it. There should have been this overwhelming response that we've been wrong all this time. We, we as a society and as a culture and as a people, we have misinterpreted Moses now for a long time. And we need to turn away from that and turn to Jesus. There should have been national repentance right there. Now, they did note that Jesus spoke with authority and they were all kind of amazed at what he said. But the fact is there wasn't great repentance. They didn't all turn to Jesus. They liked what he said. It was nice and all. But there's no genuine turning. So Jesus comes off the mount and moves on to phase two of his ministry. We've now got the words of Jesus So now we're going to have the works of Jesus. And not that he hasn't done works before and not that he's not going to say other things. But there's a, this is, we've seen the major 
words of Jesus. Now we're going to see many of the major works of Jesus. So it goes down to this city of Capernaum, which Matthew, by the way, tells us that Jesus, remember when he left Nazareth? Remember they threw him out of Nazareth? They're going to throw him over the cliff. He leaves Nazareth, then he comes and he settles in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. And so this is kind of, if there is a home base for Jesus, this is where he's centered his ministry and kind of moves out from there. This is right there on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, So here Jesus is. He's come into Capernaum and he no sooner gets there and a centurion's slave is now ill. Um, A centurion. this This is a Roman official, a Roman soldier. He serves in the Roman army. That doesn't necessarily make him Roman, by the way. The Romans made a variety of nationalities of people to be centurions. Uh, Once they conquered you and got you kind of where they thought they needed to have you, uh, they were perfectly willing to bring all kinds of people into their army. It was part of how Rome conquered the world. You would get various people into your army and you would build your army up bigger and bigger by the people that you conquered. And so this guy is a centurion. He's the rank... Uh, above a denturian, which is a guy who has 10 people. So there's obviously 10 denturians, and then you have the centurion. And there's even a guy who's over 1,000 people. So this is how the Roman army was put together. You would have squads of 10, and then you have 10 squads of 10 under the centurion. This is a guy who got paid pretty well. He, he made good money. Uh, 75 denarii was the standard pay for a soldier. 75 thousand denarii is how much a centurion was paid. So he was paid a lot more than just the regular average soldier. He was, he was paid pretty well. The question comes up, was this guy an actual Jewish proselyte? The answer to that we can't say with, with complete authority, but I think as the account unfolds and we look at how he acts and how he responds, I, I think this guy, we will see him in heaven. I you could disagree with that, but I, I think we will. I think we're going to see that this is a guy who is quite exceptional, who does some amazing things and responds in an amazing way to the things that occur. One of the things is that as the Jews, you'll see when we do the account, as they present to Jesus why Jesus should take care of this guy's slave, they don't say, he loves our God. They do say he loves our nation. Um, so if he, were a, if he were a proselyte, they would probably say he loves our God. I, they, they don't say that. Now, he owns a slave. Slavery in the ancient world was kind of a, it, it was a mixed bag. It was different. We tend to, when we think of slavery, we think of slavery in the South. We think of white people enslaving black people. And we think about the prejudicial element of that and... That was a particular heinous, cruel, and evil form of slavery. Horrendous. The ancient world had a different, their slavery was different. Now, I don't want to paint any kind of great picture. Uh, There were people in the ancient world who were very clear to say things like, well, the only difference between a donkey, a horse, and a slave is that the slave can talk. So I'm not trying to paint a picture here that they somehow thought they were, you know, you were still property. But... What the Romans did do, the Romans didn't care 
what nationality you were. They didn't care what the color of your skin was. They, they, they didn't care. They would make slaves, whether you were from Germania or Britannica or Africa. They, they didn't care. If they conquered you, they enslaved you. So whether you were highly educated or whether you had no education at all, didn't matter. They'd make slaves of everyone. They were equal opportunity enslaving society. In fact, there was no real middle class as we tend to see that in economics. What you had was a very high upper class who had all kinds of money, great wealth because they tacked the life out of everybody else. And you had craftsmen or artisans who would cater to the wealthy. The fact is the average metalsmith probably could not afford to purchase the armor that he made for, say, a centurion. He, he could make it because the centurion would pay him and he would go out and buy the metal and then he would make the armor, but it's not like he could actually afford that armor himself. So you were always, if you weren't part of the upper class, you were continuously on the edge economically here and it was not uncommon for people to simply sell themselves into slavery. Like, I, I can't make ends meet, I'm starving to death, I will just go sell myself into slavery, which was not, that wasn't the kind of slavery we practiced in this nation. And so all kinds of people ended up slaves. All kinds of people could end up in a situation where you might be highly educated, but not in what the Romans valued, and so your education didn't really help you out. You might be very intelligent even, but next thing you know, you're a slave. So the centurion has this slave, and the slave is not doing well, right? He has come down with this illness, and this is an illness which is unto death. He loves his slave. We don't, it's interesting, in the account, the slave, we don't, we, we don't know his name. We never actually hear specifically um, what illness is, is doing him in, although Matthew will say that he's paralyzed, so he's caught or fallen or something. Something has happened to him. The centurion, of course, as a soldier, is going to know what death looks like, and so he's going to know that his slave is dying. And you can imagine that he's looking at, what do I do? Now, as a centurion, you're in Israel. You're, in, you're part of the Roman army. You could be stationed anywhere. You happen to be stationed in Israel, but you could be stationed wherever the empire is. And so he's now looking for someone who can do something for his slave. And we will see here in a second that he is associated closely with the culture in which he's living. He's been assigned to Israel. He's been assigned to down in the Sea of Galilee region. He apparently has embraced the people to whom he is, as it were, ruling over. I mean, he is the, if, if the tax collector goes out to get your taxes and you tell the tax collector to get lost, I'm not paying my taxes, that ends up with this guy and he's going to send soldiers to come get your taxes. That you're not going to be able to just tell the Romans to go away. They're not going away. And this guy is there to see that done. But wisely, he has decided to embrace the Jewish culture. In fact, we'll see here in a second, he has paid or contributed greatly to help them build a synagogue. So he knows many of the Jewish people. He knows many of the Jewish leaders. And he goes to them and says, my servant is dying. What should I do? And surprisingly, 
they say, well, there's this guy, Jesus. And, I mean, he did some pretty amazing stuff. Now, what's also really interesting is that they don't, they don't believe Jesus is their Messiah. But they're willing to send this guy to go to Jesus to see if he can heal his servant. So we'll pick up here. So when he heard about Jesus, 7-3, he sends some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. These Jewish elders are probably not synagogue leaders. I mean, the, the term elder, uh, the elders, remember, elders have been around since Moses. Remember when Moses showed up to the people who are over there in, they're enslaved in Egypt, and they have the 12 tribes, and you have the tribal leaders, but a, within the 12 tribes, they have the elders. If you went to the city gate, and you wanted to interact with the people who were going to administer justice, the people sitting at the city gate would be the elders. They were, on the whole, older people, although it was an official term as well, uh, so you would go to them and you would try to... Uh, well, Moses had to convince the elders that he was from God. No synagogues, right? I mean, there's no synagogues in the day of Moses. So this term, elder, is used throughout the Old Testament. I mean, we're not going to trace it all this morning, but it's all there. So when these, this guy goes to the elders, this is a... He's a, a government official. So he's going to go to the other government officials. He's going to go to the elders... Uh, who are government officials, and have them go talk to Jesus on his behalf. Now, you're a centurion, right? You are a Roman centurion. You have access to, in our vernacular, the Roman healthcare system. I mean, whatever the Roman healthcare system consisted of, you clearly had the opportunity and the capacity to appeal to the, uh, the Roman authorities over you and to say, hey, I've got somebody who's ill. Can we get a doctor here? It's not like they didn't have doctors in the ancient world. Luke was a doctor, the guy who, wrote this, who actually wrote this gospel. He was a doctor. It's not like they didn't have doctors. So of all the people out there for you to hunt down to help your servant, you're turning to an itinerant Jewish Teacher? Really? You're actually going to do that? Um, yes. He actually, he actually is going to do that, which is kind of like exceptional deal one for this guy, right? Exceptional action one. This guy is an exceptional guy, and this is an exceptional thing that he does. He actually turns to Jesus. I'm, yeah. Let's ask Jesus to see if he will come and heal my servant. So he sends the Jewish elders. Now, the Jewish elders, uh, they come to Jesus, verse 4, and they earnestly implore him. I mean, they ask with some, the, the words here in the Greek imply that they are, you've really got to do this. I mean, you need to do this. Uh, saying to him, he's worthy for you to grant this to him. We we don't want to get into a big discussion here about whether or not you can do it, the power under which you can do it. We just don't want to get into all that, but we really want you to do this because he loves our nation. <clears throat> yeah. And it was he who built us our synagogue. 
And man, we can't wait to see what he's going to do for us once you heal his servant. I mean, we are just, whew, boy, uh, who knows what he might do. It might make us all rich. You know? uh, clearly, it's one for he loves our nation and two for, oh, by the way, he also built our synagogue. Uh, okay. Is there any repentance here? Are they coming to Jesus and saying, we are sinful and unworthy to even ask, to even bring to your attention? We... we um, we are sorry that, that we have not listened to you prior to... Oh, no. This, no this, there's no repentance here, right? These guys are not repenting. This is not even a religious thing here. They're just coming to Jesus because, well, you seem to have the power to heal people. And, boy, it would really be good if you'd heal this guy's servant because he takes really good care of us. He, he built our building. Now... Buildings are great things. We have a great building. I love our building. I, and, and God has greatly blessed us with a great building. And great buildings are great. But the fact is that that's, it's good to have a good building. The church exists whether it has a building or doesn't have a building. The church is not made up of its building. Israel was not made up of its building. In fact, shortly, the event is going to occur here a little bit. It's going to be a, maybe a year or two from this event. But it's not far in the future here. Jesus is for the last time going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to drive out the money changers and he's going to overturn the, the tables and he's finally going to just blister the scribes and the Pharisees and just lay them all out. As he's walking out, his disciples who are kind of standing there watching all that occur, as they're walking out, they will say to him, yeah, but look at the buildings. They, they actually say it. And Jesus, of course, is, okay, he gets them over there under the Mount of Olives, and this is Matthew 24, where he does the whole Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, right? And he's like, guys, you know, one stone is not going to be left upon another. This, this whole temple that you see here, all these great buildings, and they're beautiful, it's all nice. Let me tell you something, not one stone is going to be left on another. Don't be trusting in the building. Don't be looking at it somehow because you've got this great building. So even his own disciples kind of fall into the, yeah, but look at the building. What's going on spiritually is not reflected in what's going on in the building. They, of course, the elders who have come to Jesus, they, according to the teaching of their day, they are looking at this guy and they're looking at the building and they're looking at he's been kind to us and he supports us. And uh, if, he's, if the centurion is interacting with them and we can be sure he is, they're giving to him a works-based salvation, right? If you help us build our synagogue, our God will smile on you and this could work out well for you on the, on the next life. You know? So it's not surprising that he's built them this building um, if that's what the Jews are telling him he needs to do. Oh, okay, I... You know, I, I, it may be political, probably not. I, he's under no obligation to do this. I, n- the Romans are certainly not giving him any obligation to build a Jewish synagogue. But he does it. And he does it seemingly because he is embracing Judaism and is trying to understand what they teach and think. And, and we'll see here. Just, just watch. Now, Jesus starts on his way with the Jewish elders who came to him. And he ends up not far from the house, and the centurion sends another delegation. 
doesn't exactly say who these people are. And Matthew will include that he probably comes with this delegation. He probably kind of stands towards the back. And the second delegation, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Lord, really, don't trouble yourself. You don't need to, you need, I'm a Gentile. I know I'm a Gentile. I know that the Jews don't get along with the Gentiles. I know that for you to come to my house would make you ceremonially unclean. And, and, and frankly, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, we don't know exactly how far Jesus went, but, you know, he's walking, and along comes the second delegation, and here they are from the centurion saying, really, you don't, don't. You don't need to come under my roof. I, I, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And when you think about, this is exceptional thing number two, right? You're kidding me. You're a Roman centurion. You are a high official here in the Roman government as far, now maybe if you went to Rome you wouldn't be, but certainly here in this district, you are probably the top Roman authority on the local level, which is where you are, and you're telling a Jewish person I'm not worthy to come under your roof? That's pretty amazing. The Jews, for the most part, hated the Gentiles and made it very clear to the Gentiles that they hated them. There was even a sect of the Jews who set out to kill any Roman official they could get near. Um, Simon the Zealot, right? That was his deal. Uh, So uh, the Romans, of course, often returned the favor and didn't really like the Jews. So it was mutual, right? The Jews and the Romans, they, they did not get along. For this guy to actually say, I am not worthy to come under your roof. The Jews tended to call the Gentiles dogs. You guys are dogs. And now we might like our dog, but there's not. My daughter was really big into dogs for a long time. Kind of find out she's allergic to dogs, by the way. My daughter was really into dogs. And so to kind of support my daughter, I thought, well, you know, as a pastor, I'll, I'm going to find some good verse in the Bible about dogs. There's not one. There, there isn't one. You can find one, let me know. I, there isn't one. The Bible never speaks good about dogs. They are dirty, unclean animals. Um, and the Jews called Gentiles dogs. Scavengers. Mangy, mongrels. I'm, you know, just terrible, awful, dirty things that get, don't get near them. They gather up in packs and eat the weak and the old. I mean, this is what dogs were in the ancient world. And the Jews called Gentiles dogs. So... Wow. Verse 7. Probably at this point, he has kind of stepped to the fore and is because Matthew says that he actually speaks to Jesus. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. I mean, I initially just sent the Jewish elders and, you know, I I expected you to just get this done. I'm sure you were going to actually come to my house here. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. It's really not necessary for you to come to the house. I just, just say the word. And by now, we're in the first person, right? He's using I and me. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. You don't need, and by the way, you don't need to. I know you don't need to come to my house. Um, this guy is full of humility for himself and great respect for Jesus. 
Okay, people who have humility themselves and respect for Jesus are the people we're going to see in heaven, which is why I think we're going to see this guy in heaven. He is humble towards himself and respectful towards Jesus. That's a really great thing here. This, this is a good thing. Now, Steve just got done reading the account of Naaman. And the reason I wanted us to look at the account of Naaman, because Naaman is also a military professional. Naaman also went to the God of Israel to get a favor done, a healing favor even. So here we need to contrast the centurion to Naaman. Here's the centurion. I'm not even, no, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. All you have to do is just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's all. It's, it's don't trouble yourself any further. You don't need to come to my house. You don't need to enter into my house. In fact, all you've got to do is just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Naaman, what does he do? Naaman shows up at the prophet's house, and he shows up with horses and chariots. Okay, you have to, you have to think about how do, what, what, what is he implying here? And if I'm showing up at your house in horses and chariots, I'm projecting power, authority. I'm an important person, and I'm showing up here at the prophet's house, and he's going to get out here, and he's going to heal my leprosy, or boy, there's going to be a price to pay. This is proud and arrogant and projecting power and all this stuff. He's, he's, I'm telling the prophet how this is going to go. In fact, I've showed up with horses and chariots just to make sure it happens. So what does Elisha do? Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. God doesn't, God, God is not intimidated. God is not going to be intimidated by you and your horses and chariots. Okay, I'm not even coming, I'm just going to send my servant. It's deliberate. This is deliberate. This is the prophet making it clear to this guy, you might think you're somebody, but I got news for you, you're a nobody. The nations are a drop in the bucket to God. Don't show up here with your horses and chariot and think you're going to order the prophet of God around. Absolutely not. So I'm just going to send my servant out and tell him to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, uh, at least the time I went to Israel, and I would ever look in the Jordan River, yeah, I wouldn't want to get in it either. Um, it was, it was, ooh, yeah. There are people that, you want to get baptized? Oh, no. No, no, we're going to pass on that. And it was green. It was like, ooh, nope, not getting down in that water. And any place the green wasn't showing, it was so brown, I don't think you could see your hand three inches away. It's like, nope, that is, I've seen water like that. I'm not getting in it. I'm sure in the spring it runs in it. But, you know, so the name in is like, huh? What? You're going to be kidding me. He wants me to go down and get in the Jordan River? Have you looked in that thing? And I'm sure Naaman had looked in it. And uh, come on. I thought for sure that the prophet would come out and he would stand and call in the name of God and wave his hands. And I'm sorry, Naaman. Do you actually know how this goes? I mean, if you know how this goes, what are you doing here? Why don't you just go do that yourself? I mean, what? You think that it's your job to tell the prophet how to do his job? Is that, is that what we got here? I mean, if you know how this goes, we'll get a prophet of your own and go get him to do this. You want to, what, you, you get used to ordering people around? You think you're going to order God around? God is not going to be ordered around. God told you what you need to do, and you need to go dunk seven times. Not once. Not twice, not three times, 
seven times. We are going to make you go down there until you are humble. You can imagine the exchange, right? You, you can imagine, because we know I, he is just furious. You've got to be kidding me. And, of course, the servants have to go, you know, I mean, if the prophet had asked you to do some big thing, I mean, you'd have done it. So how about doing that? And you can imagine the discussion every dunk. I guarantee you every dunk he came up out of that thing still spitting. See, what hasn't worked. I mean, you can just imagine. Okay, okay. And they're all trying to calm him and get him to just dunk him one more time. And, of course, seventh time he comes up and he's clean as a young child. God does, finally, take care of him to show that there is, in fact, a prophet in Israel and that God has power. So he just stands in the doorway and expects the prophet to come out to him. The, uh, the centurion has a completely different spirit. He just has a completely different attitude. He shows up and he is kind and, and humble. And, you know, Jesus, I, I think all you have to do is just say the word. And you can get this done. Now, he sees Jesus as having greater ability instead of less. Naaman wants to tell the prophet what to do. The centurion is like, Okay, I, I know that you could do even less than you're doing. You don't have to even come to my house. You, you don't have to do what you're doing. You can do even less than you're doing. I know all you've got to do is just say the word. Just, just say the word. What's interesting is that if you look at the disciples, you look at the nation, you look at people, and you look at how this all goes, the fact is that everyone, except the centurion, they all limited Jesus. If you look and read the accounts, you can look. Matthew, Mark, Luke, doesn't matter. Uh, I'll pull one out here, Matthew 14. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that he might only touch the fringe of his garment. And, of course, as many as touched it were made well. Everybody wanted to touch Jesus. He has to get in the boat and and back up so that he can preach because the crowd is just pressing against him. And he heals all of those who touch him. Remember the woman with the issue of blood. She's like, if I can just just touch the hem of his garment, I'm positive that I will be healed. And of course, she is. I mean, she does touch him. And in fact, she is healed. But this guy... This guy is like, you know what? I don't, he doesn't have to lay hands on my servant. He doesn't, he doesn't have to touch him. I, I know he doesn't have to touch him. He is able to touch, to heal him without a touch. And of course, Jesus has, in fact, remember the guy with the withered hand? Remember that whole account, which was actually the beginning of this chapter, chapter 6? Remember the guy with the withered hand on the Sabbath? And they're all sitting there waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. And he has the guy with the withered hand come forward and without ever laying a hand on him. So stretch out your hand. The guy stretches out his hand and he's completely healed. There he is, healing him without a touch. The fact is the people should have put together that this guy has the power of God. They didn't. 
They limited the power of Jesus. They were continuously trying to limit the power of Jesus. And even though they knew he had great power, they were continuously amazed at just how much power he had. This guy says in verse 8, I also am a man placed under authority. The Roman government has given me great authority. And so I have soldiers. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Why? Well, because I'm part of a massive system. I'm part of the Roman government. It's not just who I am. I fulfilled this this office. I fulfilled this position. I'm a centurion. And I tell my servants to come and they come, and I tell my soldiers to come and they come, and I tell my soldiers to go and they go, and and the orders I give get carried out because I am part of a major system and I have the entire Roman government behind me. So I know authority. I know how this works. I, I know how the giving of orders works. You give them and things happen, and so that's who I am. And oh, by the way, Jesus, that's who you are. I know who you are. You're part of the kingdom of God. So if I can do stuff by Rome, I mean, my goodness, who knows what you can do with the power of God. This guy has enormous faith. In the realm in which he operates, the realm of authority, he applies to Jesus the same thing that applies to him. He he puts together that, well, if this works for me, surely this works for Jesus even better. Now, Jesus hears this, and he marvels in his humanity. Jesus is like, this is pretty amazing. And he turns and says to the crowd, who are all Jewish, by the way. The crowd's all Jewish. There's not, no Gentiles here, who are following him. I say to you that not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Which, of course, is true, right? I mean, okay. Jesus tells Peter, cast your net out on the other side. What does Peter know? Peter knows fishing. Peter knows Jesus. Peter thinks Jesus doesn't know anything about fishing. Peter's like, well, okay, we're going to do it because, I mean, you are who you are, but we don't, we've been fishing all night, you know, we haven't caught a thing. So, all right, we'll throw the net over. But you can tell Peter is like, well, we're not going to catch anything. He doesn't say it, but you can just, he does say it. Because you say so, we'll throw the net on the other side. Of course, when they actually catch fish, they're just astounded. Why would you be astounded? Don't you think Jesus is a better fisherman than you are? This is, you're talking to God. You think God doesn't know where the fish are? You think Jesus can't pull the fish out of the lake? Of course he can. That, that's why Jesus is like, I haven't seen such great faith. You, you get this huge crowd of people. They're up on the hillside. The day is waning. The disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, you need to send these people home because, you know, the day is waning and they're hungry and um, we're hungry and there's nothing out here for anybody to eat. Jesus said, well, send them all down in groups of 50 and you feed them. We're going to get food out here in the middle of this wilderness to feed people. I mean, it's not like God feeds people in the wilderness. And you would think that they would think that, right? You would think that it would be kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, we should connect these dots. They don't. They don't connect those dots. You have God in your midst. You have Jesus standing there. Can you guys not put together that he is the bread of life, that God fed Israel in the wilderness? 
You think Jesus can't feed this group of 5,000 in the wilderness? You think, what? Where's your faith? This is why when this guy does this, when this guy actually expands on the ministry and the power of Jesus. This is the first guy to really kind of put together that, that, you know, Jesus can do more than we ask him. Jesus can do more. He's the first guy to actually put together Jesus is more powerful than we give him credit for. How's that for a sermon? And that's the point. That should be us. We should look at Jesus and look at what we're doing, and we should put together that Jesus can do more for us than we have thought thus far. Expand your faith. And he's not just talking here about healing some kind of illness. I mean, everyone that Jesus healed of their illness eventually got sick and died. Every single one of them. It's really not physical healing here that matters. What matters is the person of Jesus. What matters is Jesus' ability to transform us, to forgive us, to turn us into the people we need to be. Trust Jesus to make you the person God wants you to be, the person who is kinder and more forgiving and more compassionate and more loving and more long-suffering and more gentle and more meek and more kind and more humble so that you are a good spouse and a good citizen and, and you are a good person. Trust God more than you trust him now. Trust Jesus for more. He can do more. The question is, are you looking for him to do more in your life? Do you have, it's like, Lord, increase our faith. May we trust you to do even greater things than we've seen you do. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, we, we wish for clear spiritual eyes to see what we presently don't see. Lord, we are blinded by our circumstances. We're blinded by this life. May we have our eyes open to what it is you are capable. May we trust you for great things. May we see that we have a great God who truly desires to transform this world, to spread the gospel, to use our lives to further your work and ministry. May we have eyes to see it and a desire to be a part of it. Open our vision. Open our eyes. Expand our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.